We're going to go to Isaiah chapter number 5 tonight, the book of Isaiah, in chapter number 5. Um, the theme for the year is, go ye, see, reach, lead. I'm not going to touch on that a lot tonight. I uh, just wanted to give you a taste of what it is going to be. And I know, I know uh, immediately when we think of the words, go ye, I mean, if we're Bible readers, know the Bible, it's like, oh man, the whole year is going to be about reaching people for Jesus. Well, that's what every year should be about. But that's not what it's all about. Go ye, the thing. That's not what it's all about. I mean, that's the main thing, right? Somebody say amen there. We get people to Jesus. That's not what it's all about. And I challenge you to be here Sunday, and we're going to expound upon that even more. Um, but in the year 2020, go ye. That's a good admonition, isn't it? it? It is. And we're going to expound upon that more on Sunday. Isaiah chapter 5, verse number 1. I want to read down a few verses and then uh, we'll pray and you can be seated. And we're going to, I want you to leave your Bible open there because I'm going to get deeper into the chapter. But uh, we're just going to read a few verses to start out with tonight. Isaiah chapter number 5 verse 1. Now will I sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. And he fenced it and gathered out the stones thereof and planted it with the choicest vine and built a tower in the midst of it, also made a wine press therein. And he looked that it should bring forth grapes, and it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, betwixt me and my vineyard. What could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, brought it forth wild grapes. And now go to, I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away the hedge thereof, and it shall be eaten up, and break down the wall thereof, and it shall, and it shall be trodden down, and I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned nor digged, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his pleasant plant. And he looked for judgment, but behold oppression, for righteousness, but behold a cry. Uh, tonight I want to preach to you on this subject, grace for new beginnings. Grace for new beginnings. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, I'm so glad that you are a God of grace, that you care about us the way that you do, that you love us enough, that you sent your only begotten Son, that we might know you, know you in a free pardon of sin. And I'm thankful for that amazing grace and that it's new. I'm thankful that your mercies are new every day. And certainly you give us grace, even grace for new beginnings. And here, the very first day of the year 2020, Dear God, I pray that you'd challenge us tonight. I mean, right here in this place, in the next few minutes ahead, I pray our hearts would be open to what you have for us, and you would challenge us, and we would take the challenge. Lord, we have an opportunity here for new beginnings, but it has to start. It has to, there has to be commitments. There, there has to be choices made. And I pray tonight that you'd work through your word, that you'd just give us power to preach this message that you might be honored and glorified in all. We pray and ask these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. Thank you so much for standing. Please, please be seated. <clears throat> I think one of the most holy, uh, holy, I think one of the most hotly debated subjects in Christian circles today is the nature of God's grace. Um, and it's not so much how God manifests His grace. We that are saved by the grace of God, we 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 believe that beginning with salvation, the Christian life is 
all of God, and it's all of grace. It's not about us whatsoever. God in grace loved us when we didn't deserve to be loved. God in His grace came into this world to save us when we didn't deserve to be saved. And we can study the grace of God uh, from now until Jesus comes back, and we'll never find in ourselves anything that merits His love, forgiveness, and care offered to us in Jesus Christ. And we can look at it any angle that we would care to look at it, but we'll always find God's grace amazing. His grace is absolutely amazing. And on that, all true people that have been saved by the grace of God would agree. Where the disagreement arises today in our society is how grace operates in our lives after we're saved. And again, virtually everyone agrees that that grace in some sense is liberating. No, I'm so very thankful. It, it frees us. I mean, it, 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 it breaks the bondage of sin. But the question that is debated is this. What does grace free us to do? What does it free us to do? Uh, one author answered the question this way. He said this. Before Christ came into our lives, we were hopelessly lost in our lust, helpless to restrain from from our profanity, our glandular drives, our insatiable greed, our continual selfishness. We were slaves. We had to serve the old master. There was insufficient strength within us to live any other way. By redeeming us, Jesus set us free. When God raised Jesus from the dead, he said, in effect, no one else need ever live as a victim of sin. All who believe in Jesus Christ, my son, will have everlasting life and will have the power to live in me. Now, how could it be that wicked slaves of sin uh, could be given such a standing before God? Well, the answer to that is grace. Only by the good grace of God. (laughs) God can take the drunk and make him a productive father and husband. God can take the dope addict and make them a productive citizen. God can take the harlot and make her a productive mom and citizen. I'm telling you, it's only by amazing grace. Grace awakens, it enlivens, it empowers our ability to conquer sin. And it is only by God's amazing grace that we ever truly conquer sin. That is the perspective that Christians have held for generation after generation. And with great consistency, they have taught that grace liberates us from the enslavement of sin. Uh, 2,000 years ago, the Apostle Paul put it like this in Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. God forbid. So the Apostle Paul was grieved at the thought that anyone would use the grace of God as justification for continuing in sin. And yet that's precisely what a lot of people are doing today. Under the banner of grace, they teach a false view of uh, Christian liberty. And this liberty that they teach is used to excuse behavior that the Word of God consistently forbids. Um, uh, they oppose, in the words of one such author, uh, any teaching that restricts behavior that says, don't do that, curb your appetites, rein in your desires, discipline and sacrifice yourself as contrary to a life of grace. They say the grace of God, the liberty that's been given us is just to live the life the way we want to live the life, and God loves us to the greatest extent any way. That type of grace claims to free Christians to pursue their own way of living without guilt and without shame or without rules of any kind. And that's why a lot of people don't like Bible-believing teaching churches such as Riverside Baptist Church because we do believe that although we're saved by the amazing grace of God, that He has put guidelines on us by his wonderful word. Um, God definitely does have expectations for those that have received this amazing grace. Now, Isaiah chapter 5 is more than adequate, absolutely, to prove us uh, that this is true, to prove to us that this is true. 
And so let's, let's, let's begin by noting that these words were directed to the Jews of Isaiah's day. We keep it in its context that, that these words were directed to the Jews back there in Isaiah's day. So that is the way that we're going to seek to understand it first. We'll understand what the Bible is saying here. And he said here, now will I sing to my well-beloved. So it's a song, the wonderful grace of Jehovah. Say, well, it's Old Testament. Yes, it is. Well, back then God was, let me just stop you right there before you start trying to make God into something you think that he is. The, the God of grace that we, that we know today was the very same God of grace back during that time. He's always been full of grace, always, always. And so this is a wonderful, the song, a wonderful, the wonderful grace of Jehovah. And this song uh, addressed to God, a song of love, a song of worship. And Isaiah refers to God as as his well-beloved and his beloved. And, 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 And he was acknowledging that he knew, listen to me please, he knew that he was loved by God. And he knew that he was loved in a great way. And Isaiah loved God in return. And he knew that his relationship to God began with God and was rooted in God's love and in God's grace for him. And this psalm presents a parable of God's grace. The Jews would, uh, back during this time, weren't going to have any trouble whatsoever understanding, understanding what was going on. Uh, if a man set out to plant a vineyard, he would choose the best piece of land he could find. And, and then he would, he would, uh, fence it in to keep his vines from being ransacked by beast, anything that would come along to tear it apart. And he would improve by, he would improve the land by going in and clearing out all the stones and getting the stones out of the way. And he would plant the choicest of vines that he could find, and then he'd build some type of tower in the midst of it to defend it from thieves, so that they could keep a watch over it. And the expected result of such a vineyard would be to produce grapes. I'm talking about juicy, luscious, delicious grapes. And surprisingly, what he was talking about here, it brought forth wild grapes, uh, small grapes, sour grapes that are good for nothing. Actually, that word there, Excuse me, that phrase there, wild grapes, comes from a Hebrew word, which I'll not try to pronounce. That means, but that basically means this, stink berries. That's what it means. No, no, you can look it up for yourself. It, it, truly, stink berries. Something that was worth nothing. Was worth nothing. Then in verse number three, God calls upon the Jews to judge between him and his vineyard, asking two questions. Um, and now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, uh, judge, I pray you, betwixt me and my vineyard. And then he asks these two questions. What more could have I, what more could I have done for my vineyard? What more could I have done? Was the problem with God? Had he failed in some way to do that which was needed to produce good grapes? And then he asked his second question, why, when I looked for it to produce grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes, sour grapes? Why? You know, God does expect us to think sometime. So if the problem wasn't with God, then it must be with the branches of the vine. So what was the problem? Well, we can see, uh, according to verse number 7, that the well-beloved is the Lord of hosts. And we can see that the vineyard was the house of Israel. And the fruitful hill was the promised land. So by means of this parable, God is reminding Israel of all that he is and all that he, uh, that he in his grace had done for them. Now stay with me here. He had delivered them from being slaves in Egypt. We know that's right. He had planted them in the promised land, a land that flows with milk and honey. And he had given them his law, his word so that there would be no confusion concerning right and wrong and what God expected of them. 
And he had given them the tabernacle and, and the priesthood and everything that was needed to maintain a right relationship with him. He had given them, no doubt we know this, great victories. He had protected them from their enemies. He had raised up men like David who led them to victory. He had done great things for them. And the Jews could look back on a long record of God's gracious dealings with them. God had provided everything that was necessary to live in a manner, listen, to live in a manner that would please Him. I'm going to say it again. God had provided everything to these people that was necessary for them to live in a manner that pleased Him. God had every reason in the world to expect good fruit of judgment and good fruit of righteousness. He had every reason. People could, uh, people would be treated justly and people could conduct themselves in righteousness in the right way. He'd give them, he had given them everything that they needed for that. Everything they needed. Let me, let me stop here for just a second. <clears throat> I think one of the things, I think one of the problems in Christianity today as a whole is that we can't get past seeing things in the temporal. What do you mean, preacher? We, we can't see beyond our own world that we're in. Um, uh, we, can't, we can't see that, let, let me put it this way. We can't see that which is invisible. There is a God. He is real. There is a real place called heaven where God lives. It, it's real. It's real. And, 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 and if that's so, and it is, don't let me lose you. If that's so, and it is, and if God knows everything that we're doing, everything that we're thinking, every way that we're living, <clears throat> then we can look at it, we can look at it like this. That the life that we are living right now, you and me, everyone as individual, the life that we're living, as we live that life, as we live that life, it's as we're living it right in front of the throne of God. What are you saying, preacher? I'm saying we're not hiding anything from God. We may be getting by with things. We may be getting by with things that are not uh, pleasing to God or think we're getting by with it. But we live in a spiritual world. No, no, I, I realize, I mean, it's, it's tangible. We can touch things, all that. But truly, we are spiritual beings that live inside these bodies that we've been given will all exist somewhere forever and we've got to get to a place to where we realize and we can see beyond our temporal world we have got to get to a place where we think spiritually no come on if we're going to move ahead in 2020 if, if we are going to draw closer to God, if we are going to have a closer relationship with God in 2020 than we had in 2019, we have got to see this. Preacher, you just kind of get, no, 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 no. This is as real as real gets. When we live our lives, we are living our lives, it's as, it's as if we are living our lives Right in front of God's throne. He sees everything. He knows everything. Nothing is hid from him. And he's given us, believers, everything we need to live the way that he wants us to live. He's given us everything we need. No, no, no. No, no, look up here. No excuses. There's no excuses for not living the way he wants us to live. 
He's given us everything we need that we might live the way that he would have us to live. And we have got to get to a place where we see beyond our little temporal four walls, if you will, of the life that we live. Because God does have some expectations for us. God does. He has expectations. So what he is asking the Jews is, of course, what more could he do in his grace? What, what more could he have done in his grace for them? What more could he have done to, to equip them to produce the fruits of righteousness, living right, and the fruits of justice? And, and if there was nothing more that God could have done, then why did Israel produce such bad fruit? Why? Uh, very quickly, let's, let's do an examination of Israel's fruit. Look at verse number 8. It says, Woe to them that join house to house, that lay field to field, there will be no place that they may be placed alone in the midst of the earth. So in verse number 8, God moves from a parable. He moves from this parable, this song, this parable. He moves from a parable to preaching. Now, there's some preaching going on now. And he targets six different areas in which Israel's, uh, uh, in which Israel produced a fruit unworthy of the grace that God had bestowed upon her. And each is introduced with the word woe. Each one. Woe unto them that join house to house. And we know this, woe is used to denounce sin. But, but, but the emphasis is not on the condemnation of sin. No, 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 no. But, but sin as a source of sorrow, uh, of distress. Woe is opposite of the word blessed. And blessedness is equated with joy. And woe is equated with misery and grief. I'll say it again. Woe is acquainted with misery and grief. Come on. It may not be, are you listening to me? Please stay with this. It, 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 it may not be that we're in some deep, dark sin. Some horrible sin that if anybody found out, it'd just be terrible. But it may just be that we are not living up to the standard of which God would expect us to live as his children. It's a good possibility. Come on. And because of that, because of that, no, if we get, if, if we're in some horrible sin, it may lead to real grief along the way. Uh, but I'm telling you, just living in a manner that is not acceptable unto God or that is opposite of what God would have us to live, it can definitely bring misery. No, I'm telling you, we're attending church, we're reading our Bible, we're going through prayer, we're doing all these certain things that, you know, the preacher tells us we ought to do, but there's still misery in our life. No, no, and if we continue to do that, it can lead, it can lead others around us. Boy, let me talk to mom and dad for just a minute. We continue to do that, it can, it can teach, it can teach little Johnny and little Susie to live in that manner also, and then one day it can cause some real grief in your life, can it? some grief because you've led them the wrong way to think the wrong way about who God is and what he does. Uh, preacher, I just don't want my kids to be so spiritual, you know. That the, what, what, let me stop right there. Why wouldn't, why wouldn't you want your kids to be spiritual? Well, you know, we, we just kind of want them to fit in. I'm going to stop you right there too. You want them to fit in with the world? You want them to experience the things of the world? You want them to be plunged into the wickedness of this world? Oh, well, you know, there's just an expectation as they grow older. These things, they're just going to do these things. They don't have to do those things. Not if we are guiding them in the right way, train them up in the way that they should go. And I'm telling you, a lot of that is just that we have decided that we are going to live the way that God would have us to live. Because he's given us everything that we need to live a victorious Christian life. He's already done that for us. He's done that. And so he talks in verse 8 about the woe of sin 
uh, uh, for the sin of greed and for the sin of covetousness. When Isaiah began uh, his ministry back during his time, Judah was experiencing a great uh, uh, a period of prosperity. They were very prosperous during that time. And, and some of the people very evidently uh, capitalized on buying up house upon house and field upon field that they might be placed alone. I mean, dri- driving others out so that they alone might possess everything that they could, seemingly caring more about themselves than about helping others. And in verse number uh, uh, 11, he says this, Woe unto them that rise up early in the morning, that may follow strong drink, that continue on until night, till wine inflame them. And so he said, Woe for the sin of drunkenness. And Isaiah is describing a drunkard. I mean, one who drinks from the time they wake up until the time they go to bed. And, and, and it's not like, listen to me, please. It's not like I think that anybody in this church is some type of a drunkard. Well, I certainly hope that they're not. But I'm telling you, those that, those that get to thinking that it's okay to have a little nip here and a little nip there, let me just go ahead and say it. It's not. It's not. I hate booze to the uttermost. It destroyed my childhood. Pretty much just splintered my family. Splintered my family as a child. I mean, I, I mean, and nearly completely ruined my life as an adult. I hate booze with a passion. And there's no place for even a little drink of it in a Christian's life. There's no place. I'll stand on that. I stand on that absolutely. So. But then he says this. Look on down to verse number 18. He says, Woe unto them that draw iniquity, iniquity with the cords, with cords of vanity and sin, as it were, with a cart rope. That say, get this, that say, let him make speed and hasten his work that we may see it. And let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw nigh and come that we may know it. And so here he's saying, Woe for those that would go ahead and just flaunt their sins. They they draw sin into their lives like a fisherman would draw fish in his net. And they drag sin around like a beast of burden harnessed to a cart. Listen to me. And they defy God. They defy God to hasten his work to go ahead and stop them or to try to counsel them or, or talk to them out of it. No, no, they defy God. Well, let's just see God stop me. Let's just see if God can talk me out of this. That's the, no, no, that, that sin of haughtiness. They flaunt their sin. They go ahead and do it. Well, I know what the preacher says all the time, preaching all that stuff, but that's just not that big a deal. No, no, no. I'm telling you, when we begin to do that, when we know that it's wrong and we keep on doing it, we're just flaunting our sin in the sight of God. It's the wrong thing to do, friend. It's the wrong thing to do. We're no, no, no. We're 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 headed for trouble. And look, at verse number twenty. Come on, I'm trying to hurry here. Verse number twenty says, "Woe unto them that call evil good, and good evil; that put darkness for light, and light for darkness; and that put bitter for sweet, and sweet for bitter." So he says this: "Woe unto those that per, uh, that pervert right and wrong." This is addressed to people who had been the uh, beneficiaries of the grace of God. Don't miss it. He's talking to his people. And instead of trying to please God, they perverted everything that God stood for. What God called, what God called evil, they called good. And when they did that, which God identified with darkness, listen to me, when they did that, which God identified with darkness, they called it being enlightened. Well, I used to listen to that old hard Bible preaching, but, you know, I got away from that, and I got enlightened. Okay, let's bring it up to today's term. I think now they're calling it woke. I'm being woke. Knowing better than God. Well, I know better than I mean, you know, man, you know, I, I know what God's word says, but I don't know. That's a dangerous thing to say. I know what God's word says, but. Well, I know, but I know, and I know whatever other people think, but I'm telling you, I know what else so-and-so is doing, but I'm telling you, I, I think that this is the right way for me. I mean, I know what the Bible says, but I think this is right. I've been enlightened by some things. I've read some authors, preacher. You better watch out who you read through. 
You better watch out who you read from. There's No, 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 no. I'm, I'm telling you, let God be true and every man a liar. I mean, if it doesn't line up with this book, you better stay away from it. Okay, look at verse 21. I am trying to hurry. Verse 21. Woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes, and prudent in their own sight. So he gives woe for the sins of uh, self-indulgence and, and self-justification. We talking about preacher. Well, they look upon themselves as the final authority of what is right and wrong. Listen, for them. They may listen to what somebody else has to say, but in the end, they will do what they want to do. And they will justify themselves in doing of it. No, no, and and this is what they'll say. Well, you know, that might work for you, but this over here, this is what works for me. Uh, Well, that, that may be right for you, but this is right for me because of blah, blah, so and so, whatever. God does not divide his word and say, well, you pick and choose what you think is right and wrong for you out of that. No, I'll go ahead. I'll say it again. It really doesn't matter to me because I say upon the authority of the scriptures, if God says it's wrong, it's wrong. If God says you should be doing it, you should be doing it. If God says you should not be doing it, you should not be doing it. That's just a fact. That's not just coming from some old preacher. That is coming straight from the Bible. And we have to realize that there is a God in heaven. He is alive. We do live our lives before Him. And we are supposed to be living once we're saved by the grace of God in the manner which He states to us by His Word. That's where we're supposed to be living. But no, no, no. There's still those people out there. There's still those Christians out there. I'm talking about people who have been born again by the Spirit of God. They have been saved by the grace of God. They're just as saved as me and you. But they want to pick and choose about what they do. That's right for me. Uh, That's right for you. It's not right for me. No, no, they they want to do that. But uh, the Bible says that's not a good thing to do. And you do realize we live in a wicked world, right? Because the next thing he addresses here is the, the woe for sin of marketing wickedness. Look at verse 22 there. Woe unto them that are mighty to drink wine, and men of strength to mingle strong drink, which justify the wicked for reward, and take away the righteousness of, uh, of the righteous from him. Woe, un, woe unto the sin of marketing wickedness. They idolize drunkards. The word mighty that's used there, it's a word that refers to uh, um, one that's considered a hero or a champion. They market wickedness. Oh, come on, it's all around us. These commercials that make sinful things look good. These these magazines and different things that, that make living like the world and dressing like the world and acting like the world and going like the world look like the norm. Well, it is for the norm. It is for those that don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's supposed to be different for us. It's supposed to be different for us. And the Lord doesn't look down at those stupid commercials, advertisements and all these things and say, well, you know, that's just the way they are. No, no, no. He says, woe unto them that profit off of wickedness. Justify the wicked for reward. They profit off their wickedness. I'm telling you, friend, God is not happy about these things. It's talking about people that seek to corrupt. Please get this. It's talking about those that seek to corrupt Good people in order to gain more acceptance for their sin. To take away the righteousness of the righteous. And it's a dangerous thing to begin to be accepting of sin. Even small sin. Well, preacher, I know that they're doing that. But that's that's not a real big deal. If it's sin, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. 
No, 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 because sin begets sin, and sin begets sin, and sin begets more sin, and sin begets more sin, and sin begets a larger sin. I'm telling you, you don't just jump on the sin wagon and just ride off and care and, and, and carefree the rest of your life. Oh, no, friend, it's taking you in a bad direction, and you might think that you're getting by with something, but you're not getting by with anything. But we are, we are almost orchestrated to sin today, aren't we? Magazines and, 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 and social media and television and movies and on and on. It's like we're just we're just we're just kind of herded into this you just need to be going this way with the rest of the world you just need to keep going this way it's not a big deal you need to be accepting of all this you need to be accepting of the nakedness and you need to be accepting of the sexual revolution and you need to be accepting of the way that people are and you need to be accepting of the sodomites you need to be accepting of all these that you know just think that that that, that they're a boy born in a girl's body or a girl born in a boy's body i'm telling you it's wicked as it can be We need to see things the way that God sees things. Look, it should be abundantly clear that God considers a lifestyle that includes these things as unworthy and incompatible with His grace. Contrary to what people might say, and and the things that are frequently taught in a lot of quote-unquote churches in this present age, God does not smother these people in unconditional love and acceptance. No, 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 no. He, he, he makes no effort to remove feelings of guilt. He makes no effort to remove feelings of shame. On the contrary, God tells them that because of these things, some of them have gone into captivity where they experienced hunger and thirst, verse number 13. Therefore, my people are gone into captivity because they have no knowledge and, and their honorable men are famished and their multitude dried up with thirst. And some of them, please get this, some of them were in danger of going to hell. Look at verse 14. Therefore hell hath enlarged herself and opened her mouth without measure and their glory and their multitude and their pomp. And he that rejoices shall descend into it. Now isn't it an amazing thing that there's so many churches out there today that do not want to preach a clear presentation of the gospel. They don't want to offend somebody by talking about hell. And they don't want to offend somebody by telling they're a wicked sinner that needs a savior. And they think that we ought to just be accepting of all these things that I just preached about. No, no, I'm talking about churches out there. We'll just be accepting of all these things along the way. We should be accepting that things. And what they are doing to some extent to those that have not been saved by the grace of God is just leading them down a path to hell. Sad state. It's a sad time, friend. Boy, preacher, I just don't think you ought to be so straightforward about, you know, talking about people like that and things like that and all those different things. I, 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 you know, you're going to be offensive to some people. Understand. Understand. And I don't want to be personally offensive to anybody as far as, no, no, I'm not just trying to be personally offensive to anybody, but I'm telling you, that book is the Word of God. And I have a responsibility from God himself to go ahead and just preach the whole counsel of God. I don't want to stand in front of God one day ashamed because I refuse to preach part of what he would have me to preach. There's some that were in danger of perishing for eternity. And that's not God's desire for anyone. No, 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 no. People, listen to me, please, please. People who think that God's grace erases all accountability for sin are mistaken and deceived. We're still accountable to God. I've been saved by His grace, but I'm still accountable. To God. There's a, uh, let me see here, there's a progressive author who described grace in terms of a referee who blows his whistle, signals the game is over before it's reached his conclusion, and declares everyone a winner regardless of how he played the game. It doesn't matter if you played by the rules, doesn't matter what the score is on the scoreboard. 
Grace declares you a winner. And you go home with a championship ring on your finger. I'm sorry, that is not the picture of grace we find in Isaiah chapter 5. And, and so let's think about, come on very quickly, about Isaiah's assessment of the problem. If, if the fault for Israel's bad fruit could not be blamed on some shortcoming of God's grace, then where did the problem lie? Well, Isaiah chapter 5 and verse number 24 says this. Therefore, as the fire devoureth the stubble, and the flame consumeth the chaff, so their root shall be as rottenness, and their blossom shall go up as dust, because they have cast away, listen to me, because they have cast away the law of the Lord of hosts, and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Where did the problem lie? They have cast away the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. What does that mean, preacher? Well, they thought that grace meant that there were no more rules. That God's law didn't matter. And listen, listen to me. When God's preachers... When his prophets came and warned them otherwise, they despised the preaching of the word. Stupid prophet. Coming here trying to make me think that, you know, that God's going to do something to me just because I'm living the way I want to live. No, that's our mindset. In fact, you, you, come on, you're a Bible reader. You understand how most people, or a big part of the people, felt about prophets. They weren't real excited to see them come to town. But because of these things in their life, because of those two things in their life, woe stacked upon top of woe. And sin piled upon top of sin. Until God's patience was exhausted. And judgment for them was inescapable. Well, preacher, that was Israel. Uh-huh. Right. No, no. I want to take Bible in its context. Sure. That was Israel. Well, and that was, that's Old Testament too. Yep. Yep. Old Testament right there. We're reading out of it. Well, you know, God's grace probably, it probably operates a little differently in our lives today. I mean, you know, perhaps what God expected in, in response to, to them and what God expects in his response to his grace today is not the same, you know? Maybe it's not. Well, Titus chapter 2 verse 11 says this. For the grace of God that bringeth, for the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. So we live in the age of grace. Hallelujah. I'm sure thankful. But it's not grace just to live any way we want to. Mm -mm. Never in the word of God, not one time, will you find grace presented as an excuse to make light of or to justify sin. Where God's grace abounds, it's always viewed as providing, providing a means to live a life that pleases God. Well, preacher, I just can't. Oh, yes, you can, by the good grace of God. Well, preacher, it just seems like I'm trying. It just seems like, I'm, no, 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 no. I'm telling you, God's grace will give you victory over that sin in your life. But as long as we keep trying to justify the way that we are because, well, you know, I'm just, I'll never be perfect and that's just the way that I am. And I, no, 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 no. That's, 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 that's just excuses. Oh, I'll say it again. That's just excuses. 
God has provided everything that we need to live the life that he would have us to live. And his grace is truly amazing, no doubt, that Jesus Christ would come into this world and die for sinners like us is, is something that we will never be able to explain except to point to God and whisper one word, grace. Wonderful grace of God. So how can we, who have benefited so greatly from God's grace, best magnify that grace? Well, let me just say this, not by continuing just to do whatever we want to do. Certainly not by continuing in sin. The way that we magnify grace the most is by allowing it, get this, I'm done, is by allowing it to change our lives. I'm saved by the grace of God, Brother Walt. And any change that has been made to the good is only by the good grace of God. It can liberate us from sin. Now, hold it, hold it. No, no, no. That doesn't mean that we'll ever, in this lifetime, become sinless. It just means that as we grow in grace... As we do grow in grace, we want to sin less and less as we grow in grace. We want to become more like Jesus. We want to say no to sin over and over and over again because we delight in saying yes to the one who has lit up our lives by his grace. See, we get to a place where we delight to say yes to the God that saved us by His grace and wants to continue to change us by His grace. We get to that place where we say yes to God no matter how we feel about it. Because we love Him And because his grace is so amazing. I think if Isaiah was here preaching, he would say to us, if grace is so amazing, and you all seem to think that it is, shouldn't we live like it? Shouldn't we show people how liberating a life of grace can be as we live soberly and righteously and godly in this world? And if we're failing in any area of our Christian walk, shouldn't we take heed to God's warnings and take advantage of His wonderful grace? Look, friend, no doubt the grace of God is amazing And here's the thing, it reaches out to us tonight, January 1st, 2020, would be a good time for new beginnings. Preacher, I've been saved a long time. It doesn't matter whether you've been saved a little time or a long time. If you've gotten so ingrained, if if you've gotten so, if you've gotten so accustomed to just doing your own thing, no matter what God thinks about it, maybe it's time for new beginnings. If there's things that need to be changed in your personal life, in your home life, in the way you're raising your children or the type of young person that you are, tonight would be a good night for new beginnings. The very first night of 2020. And I would urge you, as your pastor, that when the invitation begins, 
to come to an altar tonight and to bring your family and to decide that 2020 is going to be a different year for you and your family spiritually. And keep it first and foremost in your mind that because you are saved by the grace of God, and because He is your Heavenly Father, it's like you're living out your life right in front of His throne. Shouldn't that be sobering? I mean, sobering enough of a fact that we would want to change and go the way He would have us to go, no matter what anybody else does. Grace for a new beginning. Dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful for Your Word. We're thankful. We're thankful for the precious Spirit of God who speaks to our heart. And there's a possibility in a group this size that there's someone here that does not know that they've been saved by your grace. They've never trusted Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. And that amazing grace is available to them tonight, Lord. Tonight could be their night of salvation if they would just turn to you and put their faith and trust in Jesus. And then for us that are saved, Lord, help us tonight to just be obedient to what we know we should do. Not for the sake of others, but because you know us better than anybody else does. And Lord, that we would be willing in 2020 to die to self and live unto you like we've never done before. Father, that our spiritual life would become something that would uh, be a testimony to everyone we're around. Please help us, Lord. We pray that you will. We ask these things in the perfect name of Jesus Christ. Let's stand to our feet, our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed, altars open. Thank you for being in the services today with us at Riverside Baptist Church. If you do not know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, we certainly would like to help you with that. You can get more information at our website at rbcstjoe.com or call here at the church. If you're a believer and God has spoken to your heart, I hope you'll take time to turn aside and let him have his way in your life. If we can help in any way, shape, or form, please feel free to contact us. We look forward to ministering to you again.